Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'd like to begin today's program by thanking David F., who recently made a donation to the salon to help offset some of the expenses associated with these podcasts. Also, I'd like to thank my new supporters over on Patreon. If all goes well, I plan on finishing my new book soon and will be making the final manuscript available to my patrons to edit so that I can publish it into the public domain before the end of this year. And that means that uh, thanks to these good people, you'll be able to download it for free. And for what it's worth, this is only Volume 1 of Lorenzo's Chronicles. (laughs) So the fun is just beginning. Now, today I'm going to play the recording that a fellow saloner, Frank Nuncio, made of Daniel Pinchbeck's Planque Norte lecture at last year's Burning Man Festival. And I should mention that Daniel was also a speaker at the very first Palenque Norte lectures back in 2003 when his topic was 2012, a change in how we experience time. I hadn't realized this, but it's been over two years since we've listened to Daniel here in the salon, and that was his 2014 Palenque Norte lecture. And if you go to psychedelicsalon.com, On the podcast page, there's a link to the categories, and there you'll find a link to our archive of Daniel's talks here in the salon, including podcast number four, which is his 2003 Palenque Norte talk. Now, here is Daniel Pinchbeck and a few of his friends talking at the most recent Burning Man Festival. Our next speaker is Daniel Pinchbeck, How to Make It in Psychedelic Futurism. Hey, everybody. Thank you for being here tonight. Thanks for Palenque Norte to being uh, persistent and putting on this series every year. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know how, how... Are people here quite familiar with my work? Have people read my books? Some of them. Uh, so I, I, I usually just give a kind of review summary of, of my thinking and my, you know, up to the latest. And then we can open it for a little bit of a dialogue, uh, you know. Yeah. Um, so, um, my first book I came out in 2002 was called Breaking Open the Head, and that book was on uh, psychedelic shamanism, and for that book I visited um, West Africa, I went through a Bwiti initiation in Gabon, taking uh, Iboga, uh, or known in the West as Ibogaine, everybody here knows what Iboga is, anybody not know, just out of curiosity? So, it's a, it's a West African psychedelic, it's kind of the African equivalent of uh, ayahuasca, in a sense. It's very long-lasting. It's about a 20, 25-hour trip. And it's being used in particular as a treatment for addictions, particularly heroin addiction, under the name of Ibogaine in the West. There are clinics for it and so on. So I also wrote about uh, ayahuasca. I visited a tribe in the Amazon, the Sequoia, who have a really beautiful ancient ayahuasca lineage. Um, And um, I visited the Mazatec Indians in Mexico, where the mushrooms were rediscovered uh, by the West. Hi, Mitch. (laughs) <laughs> Mitch, I said we're going to have a dialogue after, so if you want to get involved with the dialogue, that'd be fun. My friend Mitch. Okay, cool. Um, 
so yeah, so anyway, and, and I also explored, I mean, Burning Man was a section of that book. The first time I came to Burning Man in 2000, I was writing about it for Rolling Stone, uh, which was a very unique way to come here, because I spent the whole week just ping-ponging around, talking to everybody who started Burning Man and all the artists and, and engineers and so on. And uh, ever since then, it's been kind of part of, part of my thinking and my work uh, in a way. So breaking up in the head, the genesis of that book was my own existential crisis in my late 20s. I was working as a journalist in New York, and I'd grown up as a scientific materialist and a skeptic. And I began to have a sort of crisis of nihilism. Uh, you know, and, and I remembered psychedelic experiences in college as being very um, significant. So I decided to make that the subject of my exploration. And that's when I started getting these kind of journalism assignments to go to Africa and, and, and the Amazon and so on. And over the course of writing that first book, I had a shift in my belief system, in my ontology, I don't know what you want to call it, from skepticism to kind of recognizing that uh, there are these other levels of psychic reality or consciousness that are interactive maybe with the physical reality in the way that somebody like Carl Jung talks about. Um, and that was really profound for me. And I began to realize that uh, the modern Western world had suppressed this whole aspect of visionary experience, mystical experience, psychic phenomena, and so on. And I, I began to feel that we had to take much more seriously the knowledge systems of these indigenous cultures which had, pres which had preserved a whole different understanding of the nature of reality. And that led me to write a second book, 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl, which was looking at prophecies of cultures like the Maya and the Hopi in relationship to our time and um, covered a lot of different phenomena. And essentially, you know, coming from a New York context, writing for the New York Times and Rolling Stone and places like that, um, yeah, I, I, I had accepted a whole worldview. And what I, understand, what I understood through shamanism, how much that worldview was just cutting out that was of such incredible value, uh, I had to sort of rethink everything from the ground up. I was like, wow, if like, you know, at that point you couldn't even talk about psychedelics in the mainstream culture without being ridiculed. And I, and I realized that if our culture was, was you know, totally wrong about such essential things, then we had to rethink it from the ground up. So that made me much more open to reconsider you know, the indigenous prophecies, uh, phenomena like extraterrestrials, uh, the crop circles that appear in, in England. So that, that second book was a weaving together of a lot of pieces of a puzzle, um, along with looking at, you know, science and philosophy like Nietzsche, Nietzsche and Heidegger. And, um, yeah, ultimately I ended up agreeing with what I could understand of these indigenous prophecies that we are in this time of incredible transformation, a shift from maybe one world to the next, one, one form of consciousness to the next, one dimension to the next, perhaps. Although that's all very abstract in, in, a, in a way and, and hard to parse. I mean, even just recently, I went to the Eclipse Festival in Oregon, and I would say that even that total solar eclipse felt somehow like part of this kind of unfolding of, of prophecy, this, this, this entry into whatever this next uh, reality is. And um, for me, one of the things that was really crucial about that festival in Oregon was it was the first time I'd really seen our culture really honor the indigenous perspective to the highest degree and give them a full equal platform to, uh, to, to, to speak and share their wisdom. Uh, it, was very, it was very extraordinary and very beautiful. Um, so yes, yeah, so this has been my ongoing kind of uh, exploration. I mean, in terms of um, why I feel that this time is so transformative, I mean, on the one hand, we have this accelerating evolution of technology, communications networks, you know, renewable energy systems, you know, 
nanotechnology, everything that's happening on that level. The, 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 the rapid globalization that we've gone through is also leading to the world's mystical traditions coming together in, in, in a new way, creating kind of like a coherence, like in a way... Um, we can see a coherence now between a scientific worldview and a, and a mystical worldview in a way that I don't think was available like a few decades ago. And more and more scientists are, are arriving at that from different disciplines, even biology and, and so on. Um, yeah, and then another issue that became more and more paramount in, in my thinking was the ecological crisis that we're facing as a species and that somehow that, that, that must be a triggering event, let's say, uh, that either we're going to rise to the occasion and figure out what we do to preserve the integrity of the biosphere or we're probably not going to last too much longer as a species on the planet. So th th as I finished the 2012 book, which was quite philosophical and abstract and talked a lot about of esoteric ideas, uh, which was 10 years ago, that came out in 2007, 2008, I became more and more um, obsessed with this question of, of the ecological situation and uh, what we could do to, to face it. And I felt there wasn't really a good map or, or, or a guidebook or, or a plan. Um, and so it was like a huge idea to kind of, to kind of bite off and, and chew on. And it took me 10 years of like trial and error to, to you know, put together a book or a way of thinking about it that felt um, you know, sensible, coherent uh, to me, uh, that, that looked at it in, in a multidimensional aspect. You know, I felt you, you find books that are on maybe sustainability or energy or this idea of a new consciousness or a new paradigm, but, but you don't really find them all kind of, kind of coming together uh, in, in the way that they would have to. Um, so, yeah, so that book is called How Soon Is Now, and it came out in uh, February. Um, and, um, yeah, essentially the book has two main kind of the theories or theses, I guess. One is that we can look at this ecological crisis as something like an initiation or a rite of passage for humanity as a species. Um, in the same way in tribal cultures, initiations are necessary to kind of um, shift the individual member of the tribe from a kind of adolescent and immature state of being to a state of adult responsibility where they're not just trapped in their own egoic, self-interested consciousness, but really feel that, that part of their role is to take care of the collective. I feel that humanity is on the same journey as a species where, you know, particularly in the modern world, we lost, we lost access to initiation, um, you know, and, and, and we tend to think about, you know, because we've kind of um, suppressed interest in these uh, indigenous and shamanic cultures, we tend to think about initiation as just like a cultural thing, like something that they just do because it's part of their mythology or something. But some thinkers think that initiation may have much more of almost like a neurophysiological function, that there's something about how our brains developed, like the part of our brains you know, that, that make us most distinctly human, it's the prefrontal cortex, which allows us to process abstract symbols, you know, think, plan for the future, have this very strong sense of individual identity. But, but it also tends to kind of alienate us and, and make us feel that um, you know, only our personal interests matter. And, and it, because modern society got rid of initiation rights that all these other societies have, cultures have, like tribal societies, we got sort of trapped in that adolescent, egoic state. And we're trying to find our way back now to a state of cooperative interdependence, but the, the, the guideposts are not, not, not clear, you know? Um, 
So yeah, so that, that, that's one of the main ideas in the book is that we, we can look at this ecological crisis as a kind of collective initiation for humanity that can trigger us, it's almost like a mut- force a kind of collective mutation where we have a shared sense of responsibility for the whole, for our human family and for the ecology of the earth as a whole system. And in fact, I guess one, another part of the theory would be that ultimately what we're going to come to realize is that we are a giant planetary superorganism, that humanity is in a constant you know, symbiotic relationship with the Earth's ecology of a whole system, as, as a whole system. And in a sense, we're going from a kind of the unconscious inertia of our physical evolution and then our cultural history to um, some type of conscious evolution where we really recognize that we're in the driver's seat now in terms of steering the evolution of the planetary environment, the evolution of our own species and so on. Um, so yeah, so th- those are some of the, the basic themes of the book. And um, what I sort of had to do and what took me a long time in a way was to you know, find, find a systems way to think about it. Uh, I'm really inspired by Buckminster Fuller as one of my favorite thinkers. He wrote two books in the 60s, one uh, that I think are really easy to read and short and fun and amazing. One is called Utopia or Oblivion, where he kind of uh, really came to this you know, understanding that humanity really had two choices. Like either we were going to use our design brilliance to redesign our world so that resources were shared appropriately you know, without incredible excess of wealth and privilege, uh, or we probably wouldn't make it as a species. Um, and he really saw that we were approaching that crux point. And he, and he noted a lot of reasons that we got into this mess. And one reason he felt is that as, as human beings, our nature is to be generalists and comprehensive thinkers. But in, in modern society, we created a system of highly specialized knowledge. So you might have somebody who's, you know, their whole life is focused on, you know, one part of a, you know, DNA strand. Um, and they're deep in that, you know, but, but, but they're not, they're just seeing the little leaf. They're not seeing the forest anymore. So I kind of felt like maybe I would just take on the job of trying to get up above and just see the forest and integrate a lot of ideas from different uh, disciplines and, and approaches. So, um, so yeah, so to, so to come up with that, and, you know, it gets a little abstract, and even though it's actually very wet, I think, in a way, it actually might sound a little dry, because you need to get to a certain level of abstraction just to have a model, like a way to think about what's happening. Um, first of all, I like to depress my audiences for a few minutes with a, with a quick discussion on how bad the ecological crisis is, because it always intri- intrigues me what people know and don't know about it. Uh, just because I feel it shows you how the knowledge that we need to have for our own future survival is sort of culturally suppressed uh, in some sense. Like, for instance, do people know how many species are estimated to be going extinct every day? What's that? Sorry? Yeah, it's a, 100 to 150 species are going extinct every day. And they estimate, anybody know the rough estimate of how many species on the planet? It's like a little over 8 million, 8.2 million or something. So if you do the math, I'm not a great mathematician, but it's not that hard with a calculator or whatever. It turns out that we're losing about 10% of the Earth's remaining biodiversity every 10 to 15 years. And that's because we're you know, really doing a lot of negative stuff to the rainforests, you know, which are drying out and burning and being turned into soybean plantations for cattle. Like The most biodiverse parts of the planet uh, are under attack uh, really, really profoundly. Uh, I mean, do people know what's happened, how, how much more acidic the oceans are now than they were um, uh, 40 years ago? 
They're 30% more acidic. The entire body of the ocean has become 30% more acidic, and that's because it's absorbing a large amount of the excess CO2 that our industrial systems produce. Um, it's so funny. I mean, this nice boy is walking out the door, and uh, it's just this thing. Like, as soon as you start talking about this stuff, like, like it's 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 um, creates a negative. Like, people don't want to. It's really. I mean, I because I, I bring it up all the time now, just because I, I know how important it is that we sort of learn to focus on it or be able to hold our attention on this. But you know, generally, I see people immediately want to go into like a distraction uh, mode uh, when, when you start to drill into the, to the specifics about what's happening ecologically. But I do feel it's like basic literacy that we need to know at this point. And and the good news is. I honestly believe that we're at the cusp of the potential. You know, we have the potential to create scalable, exponentially scalable solutions to pretty much all of the problems where we've constructed. You know, if if we get to work on it now, but it's going to require a kind of collective refocus as part of that initiation process, where we're we're no longer maybe so focused. Like, you know, maybe you had the idea that you wanted to have like a certain level of living and you know, have a certain type of boat or something, you know, may, maybe instead of that, the, the idea would be to start thinking about what, how, do, how do I take my genius, my creative capacities, and use them, you know, in, in, in the most kind of uh, powerful way to impact, you know, positively. You know, whatever my skill set is, you know, if you're a lawyer or a gardener or, uh, you know, media maker, you know, from, from whatever angle you're, you're, you're approaching the situation. So, yeah, so there's a set of these ecological factors that are really quite dire. Uh, and even, you know, ones like the, you know, people know about the methane under the Siberian permafrost in the Arctic. You know, so we're really at this cusp where we have to make a rapid transition. And so then when we, we scale back and we look at the impacts we're having on the planet, you know, we can see these different areas that are making these impacts, right? And, and, you know, we could look at it as, like, there's the, the technical aspects, like, you know, areas like agriculture and industry and energy, you know, and then we can think about the ways that those would have to change in the next, you know, 10, 20, 30 years so that we can address the problems that we've created over the last century and a half during, during our industrial growth and capitalism and so on. And then we can think about the, the changes we would have to make to our governments, our political systems, our, our economic systems in order to bring about those technical changes in the times that they have to happen. And then we can also think about um, the changes we would have to make in ideology, in consciousness, uh, in culture, in, in media, uh, to kind of um, get people on board this um, adventure in a way. And, and I, you know, I, I guess that's part of it for me is really, and maybe I'm not even the most successful at this, but ultimately I think it has to be pitched as like this great adventure for the, for the human species that we can make this incredible evolution, um, which is what Buckminster Fuller foresaw back in the 60s. You know, and we're seeing all these, you know, cofactors right now happening. Like, for instance, super advanced automation is coming. You know, wh one way that Trump won this election was by saying he was going to bring back the golden age of industrial jobs, you know, to the U.S., when we all know that that's bullshit, right? Because we have actually a lot more automation, more automation is coming. You know, so what's the largest workforce in the U.S.? Does anybody know? Truck drivers. Three and a half million truck drivers. If you get in a Tesla, it's already like half a self-driving car, right? If you get on the highway, you just click a button and it drives itself. So within like two to three years, we're going to have self-driving vehicles. Within five, seven years, we're going to have no need for those three and a half million truck drivers. And it's like that in, in many, many fields. And, um, you know, obviously people are scared of that and, 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 you know, frustrated and fearful and so on. 
But in actuality, we could look at it a different way and say, like, wow, like this is isn't this kind of like what we've been looking forward to? Like in a way, like if we could liberate people from these drudgery tasks, wouldn't they actually have the capacity for the first time to like cultivate their unique essence, their unique individuality? You know, which is why I think you know we all come to Burning Man. Like we want to cultivate our unique self, our unique essence, you know, our, our creative uh, spirit, and so on. You know, so ultimately we would want to create a world system where everybody has that capacity. Not that everybody's going to be a great artist, but everybody could be given the you know, time, leisure, opportunity to cultivate their human relationships, take care of their, their, their families, take care of their communities, and uh, you know, cultivate themselves to the highest degree. One of my favorite essays, which I actually think could be a Burning Man manifesto, is an essay by Oscar Wilde, his one political essay, which is called The Soul of Man Under Socialism. And he really, uh, over 100 years ago, foresaw this. He was like, you know, look, like, um, you know, in the past, it was the, you know, in the 18th or 19th century, there were these amazing artists. And they were often people who had family money, which gave them the freedom to really cultivate their unique self and their unique essence and express themselves fully. But most people didn't have that ability. So in a way, uh, you know, sometimes the art was threatening to the ordinary people or whatever. And he, Oscar Wilde said, well, in the future, what we should have is automation, like, like ma- automate everything, st- end the drudgery tasks, and liberate humanity to uh, cultivate themselves. I think he believed that um, the, 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 you know, the final destination for humanity was uh, a state of cultivated leisure. You know? And I think when we come to these festivals, we're aware of how happy we could be if we had full time to cultivate love, to cultivate creativity, and, and so on. So, um, yeah, so, so, so it's this interesting situation. We're on this cusp of this you know, ap- apocalyptic negative uh, potential and this truly uh, remarkably utopian uh, potential, which is legitimately available in every area. Like we know, for instance, like solar you know, has reached grid parity with uh, fossil fuels. You know, there's no reason why we couldn't switch over to, fossil, uh, to renewable energy, not in like 50 or 70 or 100 years, but in 10 or 20 years. It would just require something like a massive investment of human energy and time. And we've seen that happen before, right? Like I don't know if you know about... After Pearl Harbor and the Second World War, the United States um, you know, had to shift all of its factories to wartime production. They stopped making private cars and so on, and they taxed the wealthiest members of the population at 94%, and they took all of that uh, financial resource and they put it into the collective war effort to defeat the Nazis. So we ultimately need something like that within the next few years, probably, on a global scale to address these different areas that we have to address. And then we could definitely you know, scale up renewable energy, uh, for instance. Uh, you know, farming is another area. Um, industrial agriculture, extremely problematic. Uh, according to the UN, there's only 60 years of harvest left uh, because of the depletion that's happening to the topsoil. Uh, but if we shifted to, away from industrial monoculture farming to regenerative farming practices, we could start to sequester a lot of carbon back in the soil and replenish the soil, uh, also using techniques like biochar, which is a way of creating energy from organic uh, matter. Um, by the way, is this all very familiar to you, or is this like good information and, and useful? <laughs> all right, cool. I mean, are we kind of on top of this? or like uh, All right, cool. 
Um, yeah, so that so then you know so that I can go through it. I mean, industry will be a shift to cradle to cradle manufacturing. This guy William McDonoghue, who's kind of a Buckminster Fuller follower, wrote a book, Cradle to Cradle, where he really argued that we could um, transition all of our manufacturing so that it either fed back neutrally or even positively into the ecosystems. You know, and it's like a new idea. I mean, in the same way. You know, 150 years ago, we didn't really think that we would ever be able to fly an airplane, but then we figured it out. If we were to focus our creative and technical genius as a species on recreating our industrial processes so that they fed back benevolently, you know, and even increased, enhanced the health of the bio, you know, biosystems and so on, we, we could, intend, you, know, you know, potentially do that. Um, you know, McDonough talks about even very simple things, like you could have all the wrappers that, that we use could be compostable and have seeds in them. So when you eat an ice cream or buy something from Amazon, you know, you then bury the package and, you know, fruits and, and flowers, uh, you know, grow out of it, you know. So, you know, there's the, the potential for this really radical shift in our thinking and, um, and our practices, uh, which we could bring about. Know, relatively quickly, uh, when, when when the focus shifts in this direction, and that's really how soon as now is you know attempts to sort of offer the blueprint, kind of manual for how we would bring about uh, these types of changes, um, politically and financially. So now we're on like the social side of the thing. Um, you know that's that's more difficult, obviously, to think about. I mean, unfortunately, the financial system that we currently have is essentially you know a kind of suicide mechanism for the planet. Um, you know, a corporation could be looked at as something like an artificial life form that's made of kind of um, data, financial capital, you know, which is virtual numbers uh, whirling in, in, in the virtual casino of the stock market, um, you know, legal code, you know, brand insignia ideas. It's like an artificial life form that, 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 that has to maximize its own capacity to, to survive in a game that we created for it called the stock market. You know, so essentially what we're and, – and, and the rule of that game, the only rule we've given the artificial life form that we've created is that it has to maximize uh, financial value. So, so therefore, that's what it seeks to do. So in a sense, you can't even really blame corporations abstractly for what they're doing you know, to the environment and so on. That's, if you're going to maximize financial value, then you're going to have to corrupt environmental restrictions. You're going to have to buy off governments and so on. So ultimately, we would have to have a sort of system redesign of the financial system so that it wasn't just financial value that was you know, prioritized. It was also you know, resilient local communities, uh, biodiversity, uh, and so on. You know, in terms of government, I think we have to look at the form of government we have now as something that is very recent, right? The nation-state liberal democracy began in the late 18th century uh, when, um, you know, when information moved much slower than it does now. Like, um, you know, horse and buggies and scooter ships were as fast as any information could move. And, uh, you know, innovation happened much slower. So I, I feel in a way these forms of government are more and more clearly kind of like outmoded social technologies. And in a, in a way, what we could do is use the internet to potentially um, you know, re restructure them, sort of create a launch, like let's say a new operating system um, for how we organize resources, for how we you know, accomplish collective tasks and so on. And there's some very interesting kind of initial experiments to do that. Um, one is Democracy OS, which is from Argentina, 
uh, this idea is that um, you know people can vote uh, on a municipal level on a bigger level uh, they can they can proxy their votes in different areas so like let's say I, I'm not an expert on water but I know that Michael you know knows a lot about water I can give Michael my vote on water issues but then if I find out that Michael is actually getting a kickback from Pepsi I can take my vote back right away I don't have to wait like four years to vote for another you know uh, politician you know so so I, I you know so so in a way like yeah, it, it's a, in a way we have to like you know come to a realization of where we are, figure out how we use these incredible tools we have to you know kind of design and launch a new operating system that uh, will get us past this crisis point and move us into something else. And um, you know some very interesting tools are coming online that have a lot of potential and a lot of complexity. Uh, you know this whole blo- people are into blockchain. You know uh, people know about blockchain at this point to some extent. So essentially, blockchain is like a distributed uh, ledger system where every exchange is recorded uh, transparently, and it can be used to create currencies like uh, Bitcoin, but it can also be used to create smart contracts. So you can then create things that are like distributed and autonomous companies or organizations that function according to rules that people define together. And, and it allows for uh, a lot of potential innovation in nearly uh, every field. And it's like a feeding frenzy right now with, with uh, you know, blockchain initiatives raising uh, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, every month almost right now to uh, experiment uh, in, in this area. You know, and it, but it's a little bit like, I mean, essentially it's like in some ways like a return of the dot-com moment from when was the dot-com thing? 90s, not long ago, 2000, right. Yeah, so it's like there's the feeding frenzy, there's that liberational potential, and then there's that unfortunate tendency or capacity that the whole thing gets subsumed back into the uh, corporate uh, control system. You know? So that, that, I think that's a very real battle that, that's playing out right now, and, and it's quite fascinating and has many dimensions to it. So, um, yeah, so those are th- some things I could share with you. I, I guess the other thing I was going to mention is, you know, how would we change collective consciousness, you know. Uh, there's an idea that I got you know, very excited about. There's an Italian political philosopher, Antonio Negri, uh, who, who um, was a sort of post-Marxist thinker, uh, and he noted how in, like, the 19th century, during Marxist time, like, the most important form of production was material things, material production, like typewriters and sewing machines and, you know, eventually cars and everything. And since, you know, the post-war, post-industrial area, era, we're now in a time when the most important form of production is more immaterial production. So production of ways for people to connect, to exchange value, to, to um, do all sorts of things. And we're at a point now where, like, you know, the biggest um, company that manages accommodations, you know, doesn't own a hotel room, you know, which is Airbnb. You know, the biggest transportation company doesn't own a vehicle, which is Uber. You know, and, and this is like a, a new, a new and interesting phenomenon. But what 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 Negri notes is that um, in in a society where immaterial production has become the most important form of production, what's actually being produced is subjectivity itself, and and people are not really aware generally that um, their subjectivity is is, is really um, almost like factory produced and handed to them for the most part. You know, so for something like Fox News, let's say as an extreme example. 
is, is producing a certain form of subjectivity or a certain, certain level of consciousness. It's constantly re-imprinting it, um, you know, indoctrinating people over and over again with a certain understanding of themselves, a certain understanding of how they relate to the world, you know, how, what, their, um, what types of relationships are good for them, how they should relate to authority, what are the objects they need to buy, and so on. So the, the, the media... Uh, mass media system is a factory that produces human subjectivity, human consciousness. And on the one hand, it's kind of, and it may, maybe in a way, scary to realize that. I mean, Terence McKenna talked about how you know culture is our operating system. You know, but what's exciting about it is it means that potentially, if the the, the tools of media, you know, reproduction were to become available to other hands on a large scale, maybe we could produce a different kind of subjectivity, one that's more engaged and participatory, responsible, you know. And I think we see that very clearly at Burning Man, right? Because once you come in here and people shift to the 10 principles, it's like automatic. It's like they don't even, after a day or two, they don't even think about it anymore. You know, it's like participation, radical inclusiveness, leave no trace. Like actually human beings are very, very permeable and very, very quick to adapt to new ideas or new constructs, particularly if they make their lives better, more fun, more enjoyable. Uh, and, and I think you know, what, that's one of the really, for me, one of the deep lessons of, of Burning Man uh, you know, proves that. So maybe I'll like, take some questions or comments. We can have a little bit of dialogue, engagement. Yeah, you want to come and sit and talk? This is my friend Michael Garfield. And thanks so much for listening. So in, in this discussion of the movement of the economy from the material to the immaterial, it seems like right now, you know, the, the limiting resource on all of this is the attention that we're able to devote to a particular cultural operating system, right? So like right now, attention is the limiting resource of an attention economy. And it seems, you know, there's like people like, I think I, I, through you, I found out about Peter Russell and this notion that we're moving... Um, you know, out of an information economy and then possibly through and into let me, like a... Let me explain that idea really quickly. So Peter Russell is a really fun, interesting thinker. He wrote a book called Waking Up in Time. And he, one of the ideas he has in that book is that we're seeing these successive revolutions in human society and human consciousness, and they're happening exponentially faster. So we had like the agricultural revolution, which maybe took 10,000, you know, 5,000 years. You know, then we had the industrial revolution, which took you know, 500, 1,000 years. Then we've had the information revolution, which has just taken like 50 years, you know. And Peter Russell suggests that we're on the cusp of another revolution that might be exponentially faster. And he posits that would be the shift from information to wisdom, you know. Oh, and he also points out that each of these former revolutions requires the previous one. It's like built on it as like its structure. So you couldn't have had the information revolution unless you had the tools of the industrial revolution to make the cell phones and the laptops. You couldn't have had an industrial revolution unless you had the surplus from agriculture to make stuff like that. And, and so, yeah, so this idea of a shift from information to wisdom is now that we can process all this data and observe the whole planet, you know, in real time and see all the connections where all the resources are, you know, wisdom would be really acting with forethought, you know, and, and, and um, yeah, you know, in the ways I've been talking about, sort of a comprehensive systemic approach to maximizing the benefit both for our human family as a whole and for the Earth's, you know, bio, biodiversity. Yeah, so I'm curious what you, what you think about, like, all of that in light of 
Richard Doyle's argument that psychedelics are basically training for a transhuman condition because they fold the subject and object together, and that we're kind of we're, we're getting to a point where we have to adopt an attitude where we uh, we see technology through the lens of ecology and ecology through the lens of technology, and that we like what what do you think it would look like, or how can we begin to like <clears throat> prep like like stage uh, like a, an, a preparatory release of an economy that actually responds to the crisis by the like the production of attention through like initiatory psychedelic techniques like that seems like the next major like stage of things i'm curious what you have to say about that um, yeah, okay there's a bunch of ideas i'm not sure that i got that i've got but um yeah i mean i definitely agree that you know the psychedelic um, experience is going to be crucial to this you know, if we're going to make this evolutionary mutation uh, on many levels, um, and uh, I mean, one area I, mean, I was just at the Maps camp, and you know, we were talking about all the research that's being done. They're basically about to do phase three clinical trials of using MDMA to treat post-traumatic stress disorder, and they're on track to have that approved as a medicine by 2021. Um, and you know. They've been studying veterans from the Iraq and Afghanistan war. They're having a more than 60% cure rate uh, of PTSD, treatment-averse forms of it. Well, you know, whatever, even with the best possible scenario of what I'm talking about, you know, in in terms of addressing the ecological crisis, there's still going to be a lot of, uh, you know, mess and chaos in the next years. There's going to be a lot of refugee populations. There's going to be a lot of turbulence. And having these tools that can reset people and break out of their, their PTSD and so on. Uh, it's going to go from being something marginal to probably something like totally essential. Like I, I could even imagine I, when I actually, last time I did ayahuasca, I could see like vertical farms of ayahuasca in like every city in the world. It's just going to be necessary to deal with the rate of change, you know, that that's happening. So people are going to have to keep being able to like reset, I think, you know, does that answer your question ish? <laughs> hey, Daniel. This is my friend Mitch, everybody. So, having just been at the eclipse with you, I, I just wanted to mention that for me, stay there. It felt like it was interesting. I feel like I share with you a tremendous optimism and faith in the potential of the human software cultural programming um, capacity, and I think I, I really felt like the the eclipse experience. It was almost like that can be a little bit weird. The almost like there How was many like people a, here saw the total eclipse just out of curiosity. Nice. <laughs> like like a, like almost like a drum was 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 beaten earlier in the year. It was beating and then summoning summoning people. And I feel like uh, I feel like I was shown something. And what it what it what it, to me I anyway mean, my experience was I felt like I was shown that that a lot of the answers and a lot of the healing are are just absolutely available. Uh, to us, uh, provided that we, we we basically find a way to um, just tap in with, with with by removing a lot of the constraints and kind of like viruses and things. For example, um, Daniel turned me on to a lot of thinkers through his book, like Tara Dishardin, and um, there's some weird ideas that, as I've gotten older, start to um, start to actually seem real and make sense, like Marshall McLuhan's uh, retrieval of 
previous modes of being with the new technologies. I feel like the, like the magical in Gebser, for example, the retrieval of the magical is actually a much more important thing than I gave it credit for. And I think that finding a way to balance that it, moving forward is going to be really important. Just, just to give a little gloss or explanation, Jean Gebser is an Austrian philosopher. He wrote this really extraordinary book, really deep book called The Ever-Present Origin, where he was looking at the evolution of human consciousness um, through these kind of different stages or structures that were different ways of relating to time and space. And he argued that each of these structures really... Um, you could, you could accomplish different things in them. They work differently. Like, you know, magic actually is real for somebody who's in the magical tribal state of consciousness. When you've gotten to our state of consciousness, which he called the, the mental rational structure, magic doesn't really work as well. Um, so he, he listed four structures of, of consciousness that had, you know, that had existed, you know, in different ways in the past. Aboriginal uh, the idea of aboriginals of the origin. So the idea is that for somebody in that state of consciousness, there's no real history. There's no progress. Every moment is the sacred moment. You're always in the continuum. And the idea of ceremony is really just to you know, keep, keep that connection to, to the sacred, to, to the continuum. Then there's kind of tribal magical consciousness where there's some sense of a, a time. Uh, and then there's the mythological or uh, structure of consciousness, which are societies like uh, Egypt and... Uh, you know, the Hindu culture and uh, the Mayan culture, and, uh, and they view time as uh, vast cycles that repeated, or, or maybe spirals is better. So the Egyptians talk about the procession of the equinoxes. The Mayans had the long count calendar, these 5,125-year cycles. Uh, the Hindus talk about the yugas, this being the Kali Yuga, the age of destruction, which ultimately then flips into the uh, you know, next Satya Yuga. Um, and then... After the mythological structure comes the mental rational structure, which is where we are now. And for Gebser, in a sense, what happened was, um, you know, in a way, if you look at medieval art or Egyptian art, there's not really any sense of perspective or space. In the Renaissance, as we discovered space in that sense, we discovered perspective, we discovered the material world, we discovered science. Um, but this also led to us almost getting uh, possessed uh, by, by, by space. And we began to confuse and see everything as spatial and material. So we think about time as a spatial and material quality. So we talk about wasting time or spending time or running out of time or time is money. So we're constantly conceiving of time as this quantity that there's never really enough of. That's like running through our fingers. And he, he really argued that, that was a misconception and that we were on the cusp of like another mutational break into a structure of consciousness that he called the integral or the aperspectival, where we would really see that all these ways of perceiving time are all legitimate or valid in, in, their, in their own way. They're like veils that help us or, or lenses that help us uh, perceive. You know, so at the moment, we could say that we're in this ever-present origin. You know, this is the sacred continuum. It's you know, the, 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 you know, the quantum uh, infinitude that we're in. Uh, it's also the you know this magical time of the tribal societies. Uh, it's also the mythological cycles. It's the Kali Yuga. It's the end of the Mayan long count. Uh, it's uh, you know and so on. And we're also in the you know mental rational historical structure at least for the time being, as long as that's still useful. <laughs> yeah, so, so that was that was a really that was a great overview. So, and think Dan- Daniel and I are both New Yorkers. So uh, this is the thing. New York is sort of like the the crucible for this kind of time this world market and the whole world is is now living on this clock and it's so every time every time i live in santa fe and in new york and i go back and forth and it's been this meditation and i actually think this really is the way we have to go forward is the commerce between the two 
the, at least those two those two worlds. So you have to preserve, you have to have to be in tune with the sacred and and sacred and magical time, but also be going back and forth in order to gradually heal that to heal that bond. I think they were right about. I don't think Gibster could actually see exactly what it would look like, but I, I think it's becoming clear now. And the main thing, the the main point that that I took away from that was something like if you think about like genetically modified foods, we try to avoid GMOs now. It felt like it was like a cultural GMO, like a uh, cultural, you want to, like GMC or something like that, genetically modified culture. Like if you could, if you could have culture that is organic, that what, it would... What un- felt like the Eclipse Festival you're talking about? Yes, yeah. the experience of the Eclipse Festival, if, that if, if, if you remove the, the modifications, that actually the answers and the healing, the wholeness are there. So if we can create infrastructure that is... Um, that allows for that, and I think the festivals are beginning to get to the point where it might be something, it might be possible uh, that that some of the weirder things, like the noosphere, for example, uh, see, because Tehar Dishar- Hold on a second. People know about the noosphere as an idea. Uh, so, yeah, Tehar de Chardon was this Catholic mystic and philosopher, and um, he sort of came up with this philosophy that. Um, you know, there's a biosphere, uh, there's the atmosphere, there's like the lithosphere, which is the mineral sphere. And he, and he kind of proposed there was also a newosphere. Nous is from the Greek word meaning mind. So he's kind of suggesting there's like a layer of thought or a thought envelope, a mental envelope around the planet. And all of our ideas and everything we talk about is like feeding into this uh, newosphere. And he believed that humanity's trajectory was to ultra, ultimately become consciously kind of consciously activate the newosphere to create kind of like a globally newospheric consciousness, which would be kind of like a unity state of consciousness. Um, yeah, very, very beautiful. Um, Jose Arguelles uh, is one of my favorite thinkers. He was a big thinker about the Mayan calendar and so on. And he ha- talked about a transition from the biosphere, which was the pristine condition of organic life on the planet, through what we're in now, which is the technosphere, where humanity has created this like artificial girdling of technologies and radiations and, and communication systems, and that the technosphere is actually this bridging mechanism to bring us to this newospheric state, which Jose, uh, in his characteristically visionary, idealistic way, uh, foresaw as something that would be like a post-technological uh, reality, which I still think is a very fascinating concept, because we're so hooked into the technology idea, we don't really think about this idea that we could have a post-technology uh, reality. The, the, that's, what, that's what I'm getting at. So like 10 years ago or whatever, when I was working on my master's thesis studying festivals, and I, I, I did a section on Terra de Chardin, I remember my mentor, who was a, he's a quantum physicist and a meditation guy, and he, and he, he read my passage on um, Tehard Noosphere, and he's like, it's really beautiful, isn't it, Mitch? And I was like, yeah, it's, it's, it, and it's so interesting how the internet seems to be manifesting that. And he said, yeah, well... You know, the idea I take away from, from Tehard and, and Steiner as well, Rudolf Steiner, we, we, I'm not going to give an overview of that, is, is that actually, in many ways, the technologies are actually getting in the way of what the newosphere really would be. And, and, and I, like, I knew there was something true in that at the time, but I couldn't really wrap my head around it. Now, I absolutely think that is true because there was something about disconnecting the way we did that I was so disconnecting from the, from the New York time <laughs> i was so able to actually tap into the wind like just the flow of time and it felt like every it was time unfolding in place as if well, it was d- just definitely one thing i've been i mean i wrote about that in my 2012 book but you know if you think about like what's the core problem in our society like a lot of people would say patriarchy or capitalism like what do people think is like the worst the biggest like the underlying problem like the worst problem that we have is it patriarchy 
Is it capitalism? Is it exploitation? What's that? Eating meat. Okay, that's interesting. I mean, I... I Identification with our concepts. Okay, I mean, I, I, I think. I mean, I guess what I arrived at was that it's actually our relationship to time. I you know, like uh, we we know, you know, we 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 put ourselves in a kind of uh, you know limited time construct um, that doesn't give us the opportunity to really work through the the issues that we have. Like in in tribal societies, like they would have these tribal councils. So if they had some big issue that they had to deal with, they would come together and they would just sit together for as long as it took for them to reach coherence about what the answer is. But in our culture, everything is like super rushed. You know, and if you have a debate, like a political debate, it's like 90 minutes and scripted and every answer is two and a half minutes. Well, some things are fucking complicated, you know, and you're not going to reach like a, a level of deep coherence, you know, when you only have fucking an hour, you know, to, to talk about something, you know, maybe, may, may, and, and, you know, and maybe in a way like, I, I guess in a way when I look at what's happening with Trumpocalypse, I almost feel it's this unconscious push towards like breakdown, you know, so, so once we break, break down, maybe that's going to be the point where we're forced to reconfigure, like we'll have to be like, oh, like, okay, that, that didn't work at all, you know, so what do we do now? What's next, you know? And, and I, I think part of that would be even going to the question of like, you know, how, how do we relate to time and, and what is time for, you know? Anybody else want to chat or ask a question? Yeah, come, come on up. About What's your name? Uh, my name Tatiana. Hi. Hi. Uh, about Burning Man and wisdom. Do you think uh, the Burning Man spent lots of resources, isn't it? F- footprint is huge. Is it wisdom uh, from wisdom position? Well, I mean, what do you think I, about I think that? you have to look at Burning Man's resource expenditure in, in relative terms. Mm-hmm. I mean, one like you know military exercise is probably way more resources than Burning Man uses in a year. And, and, you know, it gets us here. I mean, I, for me, Burning Man, is, you know, is clearly part of some type of evolutionary process. Like the, the shift in awareness that happens here, people coming back into presence and so on, people rebuilding community and tribe, experiencing together. You know, um, as I said, it really brings to life this Oscar Wilde uh, a vision. But I think it's transitional, you know. And there were things about the Eclipse Festival that mm-hmm. were improvements. Like, for instance, they, they did composting toilets, you know, that a friend of mine had been trying to do for 10 years, you know, I think at Burning Man. You know, 90% of their toilets were composting. You know, so, you know, and, and Burning Man keeps making advances. I mean, they, they have a Burning Man solar, Black Rock solar. You know, they have the burner bus and not everybody has to use these I, cars. I, w- I would say in general to, to took so much people, so many people in a, in a desert, it will take a lot of resources from each of us, isn't it? Yeah, but I, I think, I think, and I think underlying that is like we can become, we, we, there's, I mean, I think it's clear that there's a reason we're doing this. Like, it's not, it's not even we're doing it. It's almost like, I mean, this was like a pre, you know, a, the local native people, this is like the, the hinge point, this area is like where their creation myth stems from. You know, something is happening here that's like bigger you know, it's, it's it's part of the evolutionary process on every level, and yeah, it is wasteful. It it keeps transforming. It's going to keep transforming. Um, you know, maybe in ten years it'll be all solar and biofuels, and um, you know, we'll be feeding back uh, productively into the ecosystem. Like evolution is happening that fast right now. How's it going? Okay, good. My name is Joel Love. Um, Joel. I, yeah, I'm wondering. Um, uh, 
uh, what the fuck is up with pyramids? And, like, why are they everywhere and nobody knows anything? Pyramids? Yeah. <laughs> I was hoping maybe you knew more than I mean, me. I do have a theory, which I'll share. Oh, okay, okay. yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, this was more the subject of the 2012 book that I wrote. But um, the, my, my favorite theory about the Great Pyramid uh, is that it's a lot older than we think. Uh, it's probably, like, maybe 12,000 years old, maybe even older. Um, you know, we know that the, the level of construction, the perfection of it, is more than even our engineers can accomplish now. Um, it wasn't a tomb. Uh, it, was a, it was a device. Um, there's, I, can't, I can't remember. There's one really great book by an engineer who really looks about it as, as like some kind of energy device that was concentrating energy. Um, my, my, you know, developed hypothesis after thinking about this for many years and working on like Graham Hancock's work, The Sign and the Seal and so on, is that uh, somehow we, we, ulti- we previously had a piece of technology that was based on a different form of energy, maybe quantum fluctuations of the vacuum or the, or, or the quantum field or something. Um, and uh, maybe this was somehow something that we gained in relationship to an extraterrestrial you know, community that, that, that was communicating with us. Um, there's this shaman, Hank Wesselman, uh, he was able to do a shamanic kind of drumming circle in the king's chamber in the Great Pyramid. Uh, he was lying in the kind of uh, box there, and he had a total out-of-body experience that he writes about where he suddenly found himself transported into the body of a, of a tall, spindly alien uh, woman, kind of dressed Egyptian and kind of like a, with a crazy loincloth and stuff. And this, this being was kind of uh, in this vertical cave complex. And um, telepathically, he was aware that all of the other beings were, 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 were aware that this was happening and were kind of waiting for it. They were like anticipating uh, this moment. And kind of the download he got was that um, this was kind of like an elder, you know, similar to us in many ways, species that had become post-technological. And they kind of felt sadness that we were in this, you know, mess that, that we were in. And they were, they, we'd been previously in contact with them and they were trying to reestablish uh, communication with us. And the Great Pyramid was somehow a device to communicate with them. And, and, and among the things that we'd gotten from them was this form of technology uh, that, if you read Graham Hancock's book, probably was ultimately the Ark of the Covenant. Um, yeah, it's, um, Graham Hancock looks at um, essentially like, or Nassim Haramein also studied, studied this stuff, um, you know, that um, the Ark of the Covenant was probably an energy device had an anti-gravity capacity, was probably the device that was used to part the Red Sea. Uh, Moses uh, was the highest initiate in Egypt, so he was the one who had kind of knowledge of all the secrets, and maybe that he stole this device from the pyramid, and that's why the the Jews were chased uh, across the desert and into the Red Sea, and he was able to part the Red Sea with it and and go through. There are earlier uh, Egyptian legends... um, about how like uh, the, the pharaoh's daughter dropped her bracelet in the lake and the, uh, the, the magicians were able to use a device to open the lake and, and get the bracelet. So it seems like the, the, the same type of technology. And uh, Graham you know, tracks it very interestingly in The Sign of the Seal and really follows all the, all the byways of it. That's my governing hypothesis. You know, it could be totally wrong. You know? I think also there was a, a prehistoric connection between the pyramid cultures. Uh, there's a really good book called A Voyage of the Pyramid Builders by Robert Schock. And have you looked at that? It's cool. Anyway, so he noticed, for instance, you find like uh, tobacco and cocaine traces in the uh, Egyptian mummies, uh, which suggests that you know there had to have been a, a trading line between Mesoamerica and, and Egypt. Uh, 
which only makes sense considering how similar those cultures are architecturally. So that's just a hypothesis, obviously. But um, yeah, I think there. I mean, there are a lot of pieces of a puzzle that I think will ultimately put together. You know. So hello, my name is Tanya. Tanya. Uh, yes. Hi. Hi. And uh, can I ask you? So we are here in the Burning Man, and you told that it's place for evolution. Yeah. And for changes, what is your personal challenges here? Where are you evaluating? And my personal challenges. You have like, what's your personal goal to be here? What's your personal challenges which you're facing here? Uh, I mean, you know, basically communicating this material is why I come here. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, that my personal challenge is like. Um, yeah, like, like I guess in a way raising, you know, not really the alarm. It's like on the one hand the alarm, but also the, the um, what's the opposite of the alarm? Um, you know, the, the potential, the carrot. It's like a carrot and stick kind of phenomenon, you know. Like the, the, the stick is like we really are, we could X ourselves out as a species. Burning Man is full of the most wealthy and genius technologists, media makers on the planet. Um, you know, if we were to like, put our heads together as a community we could probably make very very rapid progress so I guess that's always that's my challenge and in fact if you look at the new book How Soon Is Now it, it starts with my failed effort to um, bring about a revolution at Burning Man like 10 years ago while on a bunch of LSD um, with this idea that everybody would stay here and work together and create like a new infrastructure for a social network for, for humanity to work together and so on so yeah that, I guess I still feel that was like I've been, had a lot of great ideas that, back then but um, I, I still feel that's the potential here is to figure out how to bring the, the, you know, the, the many tiers of this community that are so brilliant and have such access to resources and knowledge. You know, how, how could it work together more, more coherently to, to bring about the changes that need to happen? Do you usually, after Burning Man, analyze? The, was it a successful year for you? Did you did your goals and challenges? Or No, not really. Mm-hmm. Not really. I mean... I always make really beautiful new friends here. Like my mm-hmm. whole my network always increases. Like that's one of the crucial things for me. I would say, along with communicating, you know, ideas and so on, it's really for me about connecting with friends and making mm-hmm. friends. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. My name's uh, Quentin. Quentin. Yeah. So I was just uh, wondering when you're talking about um, government, like Terrence McKenna talking about how culture is an operating system thinking about like the stage we're in with government right now when you're looking at how the united states specifically works we've got our three a little bit closer to the the thing yeah sorry about that um so you're talking about the three branches of government right now are we at a point where we have to move away from that or is it something what do you mean the three branches you mean judicial and legislative and executive you know the united states basically our government the way it works here um with you know the trump apocalypse is that something that we are forced to move away from or is it something we continue to refine and work i mean you know if you go back to like thomas jefferson and the you know like he recognized that um you know the founding fathers Mm -hmm. had this incredible excitement of being able to define this new world for everybody else and this new system and they were you know but they realized that they had a problem because once it's a legacy people get kind of like stuck you know, like flies stuck in flypaper in that system. And Jefferson, towards the end of his life, was like, uh-oh, like we've made a big mistake here. What we really need is like a permanent or perpetual revolution you know, where, where, where the, the, the focus is on elementary republics, where everybody feels like a continuous participant, you know, which in a sense is very similar to anarchy. Like I, I would define myself more or less as an anarchist. And, and, I, and I feel ultimately we could use 
the um, yeah, information technologies, the communication structures to um, create a, a, a way for us to do a lot of the functions of government um, differently. Um, yeah. 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 Nice. Yeah. Daniel, hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Lighthouse. Um, earlier in the talk, uh, you, were, uh, you were talking about people and kind of everybody, everything, uh, humanity being stuck in an adolescent state, not, um, not being able to advance uh, to adulthood, like there, how there was kind of a um, transformative like, uh, like process that used to be in place. Yeah, uh, like initiations initiation. that involved like, you know, fasting or walkabouts or visionary plants or whatever. Exactly. And now we've seen in the modern world, you know, people feel it very deeply and intuitively they're going on their own initiatory journeys but somehow, without a cultural context, like in, in, a, in a tribal society, you'd go on an initiation, then the elders would hear your, you know, your visions, and they would kind of place you in, in the culture's mythology and, 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 and process, so you would feel kind of situated. So here people have been going on these initiation journeys, you know, through psychedelics or meditation or whatever, but there isn't really a, a, a they're not resituated in a sense. Like there isn't a coherence around that. And so I guess I was wondering what uh, kind of path or method. It sounds like psychedelics, obviously, um, but uh, maybe maybe what uh, what that might look like for people. What kind of initiations they could go on. It sounds like you're also saying that it needs so, it needs stru structure sure. around it. So I guess for me, there's two parts. There's one, the awakening that probably everybody in this room has already had to some extent, where you you know you recognize that. You know, there's deeper levels of consciousness, like we're connected to source in some respects, you know, however you want to phrase it. But I think that really the initiation path in, in this time is, is the ecological emergency, you know, and the geopolitical emergency. The, the idiot, you know, the fact that, you know, most, a lot of humanity has been turned into like, you know, idiot level, you know, kind of uh, monstrosities, you know, in, in the Fox News, you know, era. It's very popular so, these yeah. days. What's that? It, that's very popular. Yeah, so, so you know, the, the, the initiation, I think, is contributing to the renewal, you know, not just separating from society and, and, and um, you know, going deeper in. You have, to, you have to take that going in and then take it out, you know. And, and how does, uh, I mean, the, the problem being the, the adolescent form being uh, self-centered, ego, egocentric. Yeah. Uh, so what, is it, what does it look like to be in the adult stage where, I mean, is, does that involve taking care of each other? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, in a, in a tribal society, people would, you know, the whole tribe would look after each other in a way, but, but now it's beyond that because we're becoming aware that as a, as a human family we're one tribe on the earth, right? Like, genetically, we were from one family of Africans 60,000 years ago. You know, the, the, the separation is, is an illusion, and therefore, just as you want to take care of your immediate family, I believe you should also want to take care of, of the human family and, and the biodiversity of life on the planet. And that, 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 that is a sense of responsibility that we should just figure out how to embody ourselves and, and, and instill, you know, collectively. All right. Thank you. Yeah. So, guys, maybe, oh, you have one more? Yeah, for sure. Last question. Hey, I'm, uh, I'm Devin, okay. and uh, I'm excited to see you and also to read your new book. I'm only familiar with Breaking Open the Head, but I really enjoyed it. And so um, I just had a thought while you were speaking. It's less of like a question and more of like an opportunity for feedback. 
But um, I've been finding myself really constrained in this weird predicament where you're aware of the evolutionary crisis, but it's hard to know how to act because like, it seems like everything that I do is contributing to the issue because of the way that we've been brought up. And there's no option really to get out of it. It's like with transportation, with where you work, you need money to survive and your place of work is not being efficient or whatever. And then, so it feels like out of my control. And then on another level, I was thinking like, what if it's out of humanity's control? Like nature has presented this crisis to us and, and which allows us to maybe make the next step and the, the next evolutionary step to move forward. So maybe it, in turn, it's like, it's not really even up to humanity. It's like, as a, in a bigger picture, nature has like made this happen so that we can move forward for itself in a way. And I was just interested in what you thought about that. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a really great point. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, first of all, what do I know? <laughs> Ultimately. But I mean... Um, you know, I think first of all, we have to like really have patience with ourselves and be forgiving, you know, and, um, you know, understand. I mean, that's hopefully what the new book helps under, understand the levels of, of the situation and then really, you know, figure out how we help out in the best way that's right for us. You know, so somebody might be a gardener and that's like they're just going to do permaculture on a small scale and introduce that to communities. And that's an incredible gift, you know, to the world. You know, somebody else has a skill for making structures and they, they can learn how to do that in a different way. You know, it's like, so, so you know, not, not to panic. Forgive yourself. You're absolutely right. Like, nature has put us in this perspe- position. It's probably totally perfect and exactly what needs to be happening right now. But we also have this capacity to kind of uh, become, you know, more conscious of the process and, and work with it uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a different way, you know. Yeah. Thanks so much, guys. It was really nice talking to you. Yeah. Or with you. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. As Daniel just said, in his latest book, he talks about his infamous LSD episode at the 2005 Burning Man Festival. I wasn't at the burn that year, but, well, (laughs) I can still remember laughing so hard that my sides hurt when my friend Cinnamon Twist told me the story. I've always wished that someone would write about it from the outside, so to speak, because Daniel, in his book, remembers it as he saw it then, but to those who weren't so ripped on acid, uh, well, it was hilarious. Hopefully, uh, others will now annotate Daniel's version to help us get a better picture of a legendary Burning Man happening. And I don't mean to put down on what Daniel was thinking at the time. Thought about in the light of a sober day, what he says is really important to think and to talk about. But if you can find somebody who saw Daniel at the time and get them to tell you about it, well, (laughs) I'm sure that you won't be disappointed. Isn't it fascinating how completely different an event is seen when viewed through someone else's lens of this jewel that we call life? And this makes a good point, I think. Many of us have experienced uh, really wonderful aha moments when on deep psychedelic journeys. But to bring those new ideas back to the world after you come down takes a lot of work. In Daniel's case, it took almost a decade Before, having only heard Cinnamon Twist's account of the way Daniel's long trip unfolded, 
I could only see the humor in what happened. But Daniel, Daniel realized that while he may not have done his best job presenting the thoughts that were flying through his mind at the time, nonetheless, they were thoughts that were well worth pursuing. And now we have them presented more formally in his new book. Bravo, Daniel. Now, before I go, I've got a couple of short announcements. First of all, I'd like to let all of our fellow saloners from down under know about a conference that's going to take place in a couple weeks. It's called In Theogenesis Australia's 2017 Outdoor Psychedelic Symposium, and it's going to be held from the 8th through the 10th of December. They have a really great lineup of speakers, including some that you've heard from here in the salon. People like Rick Doblin, Nache Devonroe, Eric Davis, and Kathleen Harrison, just to mention a few. It looks to be a great place to find the others, so if you live in Australia and are looking for something fun and interesting to do in early December, well, just surf on over to the program notes for today's podcast, which you'll find at psychedelicsalon.com, and there you'll find a link to the conference website, which is just loaded with detailed information about this event. The other thing that I'd like to do is to ask you if you would take a minute or two out of your day and send a note or a postcard to Gene Stoleroff. If you go back to my podcast number 83, you can listen to the first of the Lone Pine stories that were recorded in conversations with Gene and Myron at their home in Lone Pine, California. As you know, uh, Myron died almost five years ago, but what you may not know is that Gene, who is now 90 years old, is still living in the house that they shared in Lone Pine for many years. I say that it's in Lone Pine, but that's only where Jean receives her mail, because her house is way out of town at a quiet spot in the high desert, and she lives there alone. Now Jean doesn't have an internet connection, and so our way of staying in touch is by phone. Last week when I called her, the first thing that she wanted to do was to tell me that she'd just received a letter from one of our fellow saloners in Colorado, and he had thanked her and Myron for their important contributions to the world of psychedelic research. Now, if you're new here to the salon, you may not be aware of it, but a significant amount of the research that is documented in Anne and Sasha Shulgin's book, Call and Call, was not only done by Myron and Jean, but much of it also took place in that magical little house just outside of Lone Pine. Today, uh, as far as I know, there are only three people who are still alive that participated in those important experiments, and Jean is one of those three people. So if you have ever benefited from an experience involving any of the molecules that Sasha created, researched, tested, and then released to the world, well, you could show your gratitude by sending Jean a short note of thanks, just as that wonderful saloner from Colorado did. I know that I asked this once before, but sadly, uh, well, only three people sent Jean a note. It may not seem like a big deal to you, but believe me, it would be a huge deal to Jean. Her mailing address is Jean Stoleroff, S-T-O-L-E-R-O-F-F, Post Office Box 742, Lone Pine, California, 93545. Let me repeat that. Gene Stoleroff, S-T-O-L-E-R-O-F-F, Post Office Box 742, Lone Pine, California, 93545. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. 
Be well, my friends.